This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Tuesday, February 27th. This could be a political black eye for the president. They say he deserves it. We start here. On primary day in Michigan, thousands of Democrats prepare to stick it to Joe Biden. Michigan is a pro-Palestine state. If you wondered how the war in Gaza could affect this race, this could be a key moment. Meanwhile, in Gaza itself, aid workers say they're too afraid of getting attacked to deliver food. You're just getting crowds of people surging towards these trucks and these convoys. Now, could arguments over shipments affect what appears to be a potential ceasefire deal? And do you have the right to take down anything on your own website? That doesn't speak to at all to whether they have a constitutional right to censor. The Supreme Court case that could affect social media forever. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. In a presidential election year, we often think of the first four contests as the most important, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, which makes sense. Their voters do narrow the field. In fact, this year, you could argue they've decided already for the rest of the country, we know who the nominees will be. But today, Michigan holds its primaries, and this represents the biggest bona fide swing state we've seen so far. Today, we're going to win the great state of Michigan, and we are going to win back the White House. Michigan was a key reason Trump won in 2016. It was one of the states Biden flipped in 2020. And I've always believed in Michigan. We have the finest auto workers in the world here in Michigan. You could argue even if each of these primaries are foregone conclusions, they could give us real insight into who's resonating more with voters. And unlike New Hampshire, where there was a last minute effort to show support for President Biden in a state where his name wasn't even on the ballot, there's something very different happening in Michigan today. In a place with more Arab Americans than any other state in the nation, lots of voters plan to use this moment as a chance to speak directly to Biden and perhaps weaken him politically as a result. Nathaniel Rakich is a senior elections analyst for our partners at 538. Nathaniel, what is happening here? Yeah, so there has been a pretty robust protest vote movement going on in Michigan uh, among the Arab American and Muslim communities. There are at least two groups who are urging uh, these people and really everybody who will listen to go out and vote uncommitted in the Democratic primaries. Vote uncommitted and please demand a ceasefire now. That is actually an option on the ballot. You can basically say, I don't want any of these candidates, essentially. I want uh, my delegates to the convention to go in uncommitted. Vote uncommitted to prove to him that you cannot kill our people and think that we will forget. The logic here is that that's sending a message to Biden, whose policies on the Israel-Gaza conflict, you know, they're not big fans of it. Um, and, and they'll kind of send him a message, perhaps embarrass him by uh, giving a strong showing to uncommitted and basically the, the not Biden candidate. Right. How significant of a protest vote could this be? It's not like Biden's going to lose this contest, we think, to uncommitted. Right. So, I mean, you know, what could the implications be? 
No, exactly. And uh, certainly, you know, we shouldn't say that uh, dissatisfaction with Biden on Gaza is limited to the Arab American or Muslim communities. Right. But it is worth noting that only 2% of Michigan's population is Arab American. So it is a small fraction, although probably a larger portion of the Democratic Party electorate. To give you an example, um, so one of the groups listened to Michigan has said that their goal is to get 10,000 votes for uncommitted. Uh, the other one, Abandoned Biden, has said 20,000 votes. Mm-hmm. Um, but in kind of the grand scheme of thousands of thousands, of votes, Biden is still probably going to win this primary with somewhere in the 80s. And 20,000 votes. Important to remember that back in 2012, Barack Obama was running unopposed. 20,000 Michiganders voted uncommitted then, too. So should we just see this as, yeah, people are going to use these opportunities to show dissatisfaction all the time? Or is this president particularly vulnerable on the Gaza issue with his base of Democrats? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Democrats aren't super enthusiastic about him. When I saw him speak, it just seems like he aged quickly. Whether it's because of his age or maybe a perception that he hasn't gotten much done in office. I think that people are for Biden because they're just so anti-Trump. But among the Arab American and Muslim communities, it really is about Gaza. This is the issue that they will just come back to time and time again. We don't support our U.S. tax dollars going towards Israel to ethnically cleanse Palestine. It is basically the number one issue, the number two issue, and the number three issue. The point is enough is enough. End of the day, end of the day that Joe Biden failed himself. In especially Metro Detroit, there are a lot of Palestinian-American communities, um, some Lebanese-American communities whose families may also have been uh, touched by the conflict, obviously Lebanon, uh, right on the border there with Israel. You wake up every day on social media, on the news, uh, getting phone calls from your loved ones at home, whether it's from Palestine or, or, or Lebanon, saying that they don't feel safe from Israeli attacks. They have family back there. A lot of them have family members who have died. Um, it is an all-consuming issue, and they see Biden as someone who is really embracing Israel and not showing kind of enough remorse for the plight of the Palestinians. Michigan is a pro-Palestine state! So I voted for Biden in the last election cycle, and I won't be voting for him this cycle. There was a recent poll that was conducted by John Zogby Strategies of Arab American voters, and it found that they disapprove of Biden's response to the violence, 67 percent to 26 percent. So pretty decisive uh, dissatisfaction there among this community. Okay, so so that's on the Democratic side of things. What's going on with the Republicans? Because we said Nikki Haley just got trounced in South Carolina, and she's still going today, right? Like she's participating in this primary. What are the expectations? Yeah, I mean, you know, Nikki Haley hasn't won a single primary yet, and she's kind of running out of time. Like she's got to win one at some point, right? It's great to be here. We came from South Carolina. It's colder here. Michigan is kind of the first in a long string of primaries that I think are going to be really good for Trump, even better than the ones that have already happened, just because demographically states like New Hampshire and South Carolina are a little bit better for Haley. Obviously, South Carolina is her home state. Michigan and like Texas, a lot of the states voting on Super Tuesday, no such luck. This November, the great state of Michigan is going to tell crooked Joe Biden, you're fired. Get the hell out of here. According to 538's polling average of Michigan, Trump is leading there 79% to 22%, which is obviously a far cry from uh, even the 60-40 split that we saw in South Carolina. I know 40% is not 50%. (laughs) But I also know 40% is not some tiny group. If the polls come true in Michigan, that's just a landslide. And, you know, in, in many ways, that primary is as uncompetitive as the Democratic primary. 
And by the way, Brad, there's also uh, kind of some drama surrounding the delegate allocation in Michigan on the Republican side. So this primary is only going to be worth like half of the delegates that Michigan is sending to the RNC. The other half is going to be determined by a convention that's happening on Saturday. But there's actually a schism within the Republican Party in Michigan where there are two groups that both claim to be the legitimate Republican Party of Michigan, and they are both holding conventions on Saturday. Um, and they're both going to presumably uh, say that they want to nominate Trump. But there are these two like, you know, different groups that are going to be claiming, oh, we're we're sending the delegates to the RNC. So it's kind of a mess. You know, there's a lot of inside baseball there. The RNC is going to have to sort it out. But um, wow. it does go to, you know, to show just kind of how fragmented the, uh, you know, the apparatus is in Michigan. That's interesting. It's, and you can imagine if this was a more competitive primary, like that would be a big problem. And yet here we are. Exactly. Uh, Nathaniel Reichert with our partners at 538. Thanks so much. Thanks. This sense of heightened tension around Gaza has gotten to the point where over the weekend, a U.S. service member, a current member of the U.S. Air Force named Aaron Bushnell, walked up to the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., said the words, free Palestine, and set himself on fire. We learned yesterday he has died from his injuries. And this comes as residents of Gaza say not only are their streets being bombed, their homes being destroyed, they're also saying the food and medical supplies they so desperately need aren't even making it in. And they're blaming Israel. Let's go to ABC's foreign correspondent, Tom Sufi Burridge, who's in Tel Aviv right now. Tom, I think The Hague has ordered Israel to make sure aid was being sent to civilians there. So what is happening? Well, Brad, not enough humanitarian aid is getting into Gaza. I mean, that's what the UN says. They say that there needs to be about 500 trucks of aid reaching Gaza on on a daily basis. Throughout this month, it's been roughly speaking 100 trucks a day. Council members were informed of the dire humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip and of the extremely difficult and dangerous conditions under which United Nations personnel and a broader humanitarian and healthcare community in Gaza are operating. Now, there is one crossing point in the south of Gaza which is open. Some trucks are getting through there. There are pretty extensive security checks by the Israelis at that crossing point. The Israelis say that those checks are necessary. They need to check that it is purely humanitarian aid going into the strip. But, you know, it's a very, very complicated environment for aid agencies to operate in. And not enough of those trucks are kind of getting through to the the worst hit areas, and in particular, the north of the Gaza Strip. I mean, up in the north, you know, there is some fighting. It's more limited. The war is, is wound down a bit up there. But the communities are much more cut off. I mean, you've, you've got that only one crossing point, which is open in the south. So getting that aid right up to the north is, is all the more hard. And then sometimes when aid is actually getting into areas, you're just getting crowds of people surging towards these trucks and these convoys. <laughs> And it's almost creating a, a dangerous dynamic on the ground for the crews and the and, and the employees of those aid agencies taking in that aid. Well, right. In fact, to the point where the UN World Food Program is now saying like they're pausing aid shipments into Gaza. They're like, we can't work like this. I think Jordan is even organizing airdrops of food. But what I'm not hearing is like there's the Israeli military blocking shipments or something, right? So so what is the complaint here? Like how, how is Israel complicit in the eyes of these Palestinians? I mean, it's a myriad of factors why getting aid into the areas where there's the greatest need is incredibly hard. I mean, look, the, 
The Israelis control the crossing points, so they've got their security checks. There's the broad security environment, i.e. Israel is still conducting a military campaign. And on top of all of that, just to complicate things further, some Israeli citizens are off their own back, going down to Kerem Shalom, this one crossing point in the south which is open, and they're actually physically trying to block aid getting in. Mm. They say that any aid that gets into Gaza ultimately ends up in the hands of Hamas and helps Hamas, who they deem to be a terrorist group. So it's a complicated picture. Wow. And well, and that makes me wonder, Tom, when we talk about ceasefire negotiations, because those are ongoing, right? And it makes me wonder, like, is aid, aid has been part of these talks, right? So, I mean, is it considered at this point a bargaining chip or like a mandatory thing to, you know, save many, many lives in Gaza? There's no doubt an increase in the flow of aid into Gaza is a condition that Hamas wants for a ceasefire to take place. My national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. It's not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire. What we've had in the last couple of days is a framework agreement, which Israel, an Israeli official telling ABC News that Israel is willing to accept. That framework would see roughly 40 hostages being released. Mm. It would see a six-week ceasefire. We're talking about the hostages that could be released, maybe the elderly, the sick, possibly female Israeli soldiers, not male Israeli soldiers being held by Hamas. Mm. In return, Israel would release hundreds of Palestinian prisoners. And, And according to this official the IDF might redeploy its troops to different parts of the Gaza Strip, but it would not withdraw its forces completely from Gaza. The massive caveat right now is that we've had no response officially from Hamas to this proposed framework. It depends on Hamas. We believe a deal is possible and we hope Hamas will agree to one. Even though talks are continuing this week in Qatar, but a lot more of the detail, including getting more aid into Gaza, needs to be worked out. Right. And you were telling me that from the Palestinian side, the clock is kind of ticking. Ramadan is less than two weeks away. A lot of officials on both sides of the table said they'd like to get some sort of agreement before that. Uh, Tom Sufi Burridge there in Tel Aviv. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, a few states have their own terms of service. A huge case for social media after the break. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor, you know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more or I'd read a book or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? 
Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. Imagine if you were on YouTube right now, and the homepage was just a random sampling of its videos. Right? A music video, a DIY tutorial, a French advertisement, a three-hour stream of someone's turtle, just pure chaos. For companies like YouTube, that is poison. They know you want to watch certain stuff more than others, which is the point of these algorithms that kind of curate your homepage. If you don't speak French, you won't see French videos anymore. If you don't like politics, you won't get conservative talk shows pushed your way. But what if YouTube had to show that conservative talk show? What if by law they had to treat every single piece of content the same? Yesterday in Washington, the Supreme Court heard a pair of cases that could have profound implications for social media. ABC's Devin Dwyer covers the court. Devin, what are these cases? These are cases that take on the big question, Brad, of whether social media companies you mentioned are more like newspaper publishers or telephone companies, utilities that have to serve everybody regardless of message, classification, you name it. For generations in this country, social media companies have been in the newspaper column. They've been considered publishers where they have First Amendment rights to decide what we see, when we see it, and even who can participate in speaking on those sites. They famously, of course, kicked Donald Trump off of X and Facebook uh, after the January 6th attacks. That was on the table here. These are two cases from Florida and Texas, each one dealing with attempts by the Republican legislators in those states to put new limits on social media companies in those states for how they limit the types of things we see, the types of people that can participate. The platforms do not have a First Amendment right to apply their censorship policies in an inconsistent manner and to censor and deplatform certain users. This was a direct response to what has been perceived for many years as censorship of conservative viewpoints on social media. Uh, And yesterday, the Supreme Court got right into it. They've never had to answer these questions before. Uh, And in these two cases, they're very plainly asked to take on the question of does the First Amendment apply to when social media companies are moderating the content we see? Telephone and delivery companies that carry speech from point A to point B aren't shielded by the First Amendment when they provide that service. But that's because they're not producing any expression of their own. It's not because they're some kind of common carrier or communications company exception to the First Amendment. And as you and I have talked about many times, you talked about it there, those algorithms are so critical to how we all experience the internet. Is that the internet company, Facebook, Instagram? Is that them speaking in how they present to us? Or are they essentially providing a service, an open forum, where they have to really dial down those algorithms and let everybody have a fair shot? It's a tricky question. And that's the newspaper thing you're saying. Like a newspaper kind of curates what its front page. It it decides what viewpoints, what stories they're going to publish. That's right. And these companies are saying, like, we, we deserve the same sort of latitude. 
journalistic license. Of course, the government can't tell the New York Times what to write, how to write it, and they can also not get into the business of what's on the editorial page. The government can't require a newspaper to say, present both sides. You know, you carried a conservative op-ed, now you have to carry a, a liberal one or vice versa. The social media companies here have taken that position that the government cannot force them to carry terrorist content, cannot force them to carry anti-vaxxer content if they don't want to. Yeah, what's the argument against that? Well, you know, those examples, these states would say are are ridiculous. Of course, you know, the terrorist content should be banned and there's other laws governing that. What they really want to get into, though, is what they perceive as content moderation. They arrange material on the site in various ways, but that doesn't speak to at all to whether they have a constitutional right to censor. The anti-vaxxer debate is a great example. You know, in the height of the COVID pandemic, there was all this information and misinformation swirling around out there about COVID and the COVID vaccine. Uh, And you had these companies, sometimes at the urging of the CDC and other government agencies, really trying to filter out what the government saw at the time and public health officials saw was dangerous information that was not accurate. Yet if platforms that passively host the speech of billions of people are themselves the speakers and can discriminate, there will be no public square to speak of. So you have the other side saying, well, wait a second, our views should matter too. You can't be silencing us. Facebook, Instagram, these are basically like the public square uh, and everybody should have an equal say. What would happen if the court sided with Florida and Texas here? Like, what would that mean for social media companies? And what would that mean for us, like, as we navigate this digital world? Well, if the court sides with Florida and Texas and upholds these laws, the Internet companies say the sky will fall. I mean, honestly, if this statute goes into effect, we'd sort of have to fundamentally change our business models. Right out of the gate, they say they're going to be pressed with a very expensive and difficult challenge of how they can provide tailored services in Texas and in Florida that comply with the law. How do they create news feeds for Facebook users just in Texas that have no filter and vice versa in Florida? How can Facebook and X enforce their rules about what people can and can't say in most of the country, but not enforce them in Florida? So they'd be faced immediately with a very practical challenge. But for the rest of us, if we're living in those states, the internet companies say it would mean a very complicated and unpleasant user experience. There would be no filter on what comes through the feed or the search uh, results that you type into Google or the search box on any of those apps. Um, They say everything would have to be presented. Because, you know, these same companies are getting hammered by people that say we're not doing enough to keep material that's harmful to children off of these sites. And yet these laws make it impossible for us to keep material that's, that's harmful to children off of our sites unless we take so much material off of our sites that nobody can say that we're not being inconsistent or not discriminating. And Facebook, Google, they're multifaceted platforms. I mean, Facebook has the messenger function, which is like email. Uh, and so there was a lot of concern. Can Facebook limit what types of messages are being sent? Can they get into that game? I take it your view then is that uh, providers can discriminate on the basis of political views, religious beliefs, maybe even race. There was almost a divide, Brad, among the conservatives. I mean, traditional conservatives stick their nose up at more government regulation. So here you have two uh, Republican-led states regulating private businesses, and you had Chief Justice John Roberts asking aloud. We're talking about the First Amendment, whether our first concern should be uh, uh, with the state regulating uh, what 
you know, we have called the modern uh, public square. But at the same time, you had justices like Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas, who have long been skeptical and outspoken uh, against these behemoth social media companies, particularly in how they've treated conservatives, um, take a much harder line towards them. So what is the algorithm saying? I don't know. I'm not on any, you know, but what is it saying? At one point, Clarence Thomas, kind of funny, acknowledged he wasn't quite sure um, how the algorithm actually works on these sites and what it actually, quote unquote, says. Is it actually speech to have an algorithm, you know, filtering content, he asked. It drew a little bit of a chuckle from those in the courtroom. But his point is, maybe that isn't covered by the First Amendment and that these companies actually should be regulated by the government. Yeah, there's always these moments where the justices don't sound super hip with it. Then all of a sudden I'm like, well, I don't know what the algorithm says either. I don't know any of this. <laughs> all right. Uh, David Dwyer, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Brett. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, the doctors are out. All of them. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. We talk about how bad doctor waiting room times can get in the U.S. Well, now imagine if half the doctors walked out of the job. Right now in South Korea, 10,000 doctors are on strike. This is about two-thirds of their residents and interns, the young doctors that are often the first person to check you out before a specialist gets involved. For the last week, appointments have been canceled, surgeries and cancer treatments have been delayed. An 80-year-old woman died by cardiac arrest last Friday after seven hospitals turned her away, saying, we just don't have the staff to treat you. It's gotten to the point where the country's prime minister has issued a threat. Get back to work by Thursday or face suspensions, fines, potentially go to jail if your patients are affected. How did it all get to this? Well, right now, there are drastic doctor shortages in South Korea, particularly for some of the less lucrative areas like pediatrics. Parents routinely have to scramble to find someone to care for their child. The government said... All right, let's get more doctors and announced a plan to double enrollment at their medical schools. They're offering incentives to people who want to study pediatrics. But these current doctors said that's not going to fix the problem. According to them, the reason students don't want these jobs is because conditions are terrible. And that's not going to change with crowded medical schools and still underfunded facilities. If anything, they say this is a political band-aid ahead of April elections. Critics of these doctors, though, say the only reason you guys are striking is because you're in a profession where you're highly sought after, you're paid better than the average Korean, and now you see 10,000 new doctors about to flood into your profession. You guys are just worried your monopoly's going away. Whoever's right, this is one of the few weeks of the year that Americans can look at another developed country and say, you guys really need to get your medical system figured out. 
Okay, I think I figured something out, because I always ask you guys for ratings and reviews. I think I'm learning that if I name-check those of you who have given us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, the rest of you are like, oh yeah, I should do that. Well, fine. I'm not above that. Elizabeth (laughs) says for years she avoided news because it was too stressful. Now she's found Start Here and loves it. Glad you're here, Elizabeth. Zeph says this is the best news team. I agree with Zeph. And user Stace Ken, maybe it's Stacy and Ken, I'm not sure, says Brad always asks us for ratings but never tells us how to do them. Obviously, you figured it out, Stace, eventually. For the rest of you, you can open your phone right now. You open the podcast app where you are listening to my voice. Click the title of our show that's there in purple. That'll take you to our show page. Scroll down to the ratings. There's a spot for you to type in how helpful you think we are, whether it's with the news or just phone directions. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. Mm-hmm.